Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. My name's Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. Today, I have a fantastic guest that is going to help you tackle the fear of saying no, teach you how to build relationships as a creative, and offer a step-by-step guide to the right and wrong way to pitch your music for film and TV. But before we dive in, I want to ask you a favor. If you love the show and it has helped you, please consider leaving it a rating and review. It really helps bring the show visibility, push it up the charts, and really, most importantly, allows the community to connect with more creatives who can support each other's dreams. Also, consider posting about the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Word of mouth is very important to podcasts, so if you like what you hear, please share. Now to today's amazing guest. Eric Kelver is a music supervisor, drummer, arranger, composer, and even former child star magician, best known for working on music for shows such as Hawaii Five O, The Talk, the movie Fast Five, and for music supervising a couple of recent iterations of Crash Bandicoot, the video game which was always one of my favorites growing up. I wanted to have Eric on the show because he is a prime example of a multifaceted creative that can't be held down by one job title. His passions range from music to marathons and even owning his own boxing gym. He found a way to embrace everything that he loves and proves that we can all overcome our mental obstacles, just as we overcome our physical. He also has great practical tips for musicians and music business creatives. From our conversation, you'll learn tips to take fear out of the driver's seat, the best way to develop industry relationships, how to find what makes you valuable, ways to gain peace while doing nothing, methods to overcome workaholism, and the right and wrong way to pitch your music in order to get it featured in film and on TV shows. Okay, now here he is, Eric Kelver. You grew up with a father who was a professional magician. First of all, what was that like? How did it affect your life path and choices? To clarify, he still is a professional magician. Yes, dad. He, he has been doing it for over 50 years. And it's it's something that is very unique. Did he start up. when he was a fetus or was he a child? Okay, here's the <laughs> here's the whole background of that. So his grandfather, which is my great-grandfather, was an assistant to Harry Houdini. Oh my gosh. He was a sheet metal worker, and whenever Houdini came into town in New England, my great-grandfather would help build the milk can that he would go in and escape from and would talk with the crew and learn the tricks of the trade, literally. So my great-grandfather taught my father, when he was around five, all these magic tricks that he learned from Harry Houdini and his crew. And my dad just ran with it. And I I think another reason why he loved the entertainment stuff so early is that his mother, my grandmother, was a touring singer and nightclub singer. And so she was the real deal. And so coming from that, my dad started at age five, was a magician in Rhode Island. He was known as Rhode Island's youngest magician and just kept doing more and more shows. And then was also involved with a lot of theater programs that needed magic elements to the shows. And that's where he met my mom, who was a stage manager when they were both doing the show Carousel. And love uh, it. And so then from that day forth, like my mom joined in with my dad doing magic stuff. And then they toured around the country. They did Carnival Cruise Lines. They did all these different things for about 10 years. And then they had me. So what did it look like for them and you once you came into the picture? Did they stop touring? Was the magic thing still happening, but just locally? How did that affect your childhood? It was mostly local. I will say that. People who have entertainment jobs, your work is on the weekend or at nights. So when I was going to school during the week, my parents were available every weekday, pretty much. And then my sister came into the story five years after I was born. But we were just used to, oh, mom and dad are working on the weekends. So it it just kind of became ingrained in our, our growing up. When did you start to realize that not everybody's parents were magicians? <laughs> <laughs> pretty early on when everyone gave me a weird look 
in elementary school. And I said, oh, yeah, my dad's a magician. My mom's a clown. That's normal to me. What about you guys? <laughs> and they're like, oh, my dad works at an office. Like, what's that? What's that like? <laughs> how do you think it affected your view of what was possible for your life? And how do you think it sparked dreams in you? Wow, that's a great question. I grew up just kind of thrown into magic at an early age. My dad thought it would be cute to have a young five-year-old assistant doing magic. Do you love and how you would have killed TikTok today? You would have been oh, like man. the TikTok king, a five-year-old oh. magician. Yeah, man, I, I made some horrible <laughs> life choices. I need to go back. Yeah, the fact that you weren't born now, it's all your fault. Oh, it's all my fault. Um, I, so I was on TV with my dad for, I want to say, three years as a kid magician in wow. Rhode Island. So we were on uh, the local Bozo the Clown show. And the way we got that was I just wrote a letter to Bozo on the local Bozo show and he showed my picture and I got tickets to go. So I went to the show and my dad was probably talking to a producer and said, hey, I'm a magician. If you guys ever want a magician on the show, I'd love to do something. And so they came up with a segment where we filmed like 12 different segments in a day when I was like five. And that would last wow. like for a while. And then we'd go back and film more. So I had a little bit of fame and I really mean little because Rhode Island's so small. So whenever we'd go do birthday parties or I'd do all these shows with them, they'd know me as the amazing Eric from Bozo the Clown because that was my stage name. And then, you know, I was just, well, we're doing magic. So that's what I'm going to do. Or that's what I thought I was going to do. And then as I got to like, nine or 10, my dad started showing me the Beatles. And that's when the music came into my life. And I was just amazed by Ringo and thought, oh, what he's doing is just so different. Because I was so used to unique stuff. Like my parents were magicians. Not everyone was used to that. Everyone wanted to play guitar, but I saw Ringo on drums and I thought, well, that's unique. Like I want to do something unique like that. So then that transitioned into me getting more into music after seeing that thing you do, you know, the famous Tom Hanks movie. Oh, yeah. I watched so, that on an airplane when I was young. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, I was not on an airplane. I think I was I hadn't been on an airplane yet, but <laughs> was, uh, I uh, got so into that movie and that really made the decision of I think I want to be a drummer in some capacity. Wow. So the the talent shows in high school, it was kind of a weird blend of like, well, I'm doing all these drum things, you know, I'm doing magic as well, but I was starting to realize the magic's not really what I want to focus on. You know, I grew up with, we're all about magic and that was my identity, but I wanted my own identity. So that's where the drumming came in. Okay. This is an amazing story. I have so many questions to break down. First of all, how do you think having that little flavor of fame at a young age affected you? Were you chasing that as you got older? not necessarily. I think it may have made my head a little big at certain times. I think because I was used to being the magic kid and there weren't too many magic kids in Rhode Island. So when it went to drumming, I know I had a little bit of a big head when I first started drumming at 11 years old because I thought I was unique by being the drummer, which actually got me a little bit in trouble with a kid who wanted to <laughs> beat me up after school because I guess I talked about how I, I was good at drumming or whatever. We got sent to the principal's office because I said this kid wanted to beat me up. And the principal said to the kid, why do you want to beat up Eric? And he started crying. And Aww. he said, oh, because he's better than me. Because he said he's a better drummer and he's a better student. He's better than me. And that at 11 years old, gave me a culture shock of, oh no, this is too much. I need to chill out. And so over the years, I I became a lot more humble. I tried to over the years and then became a lot more anxious about myself and judging myself. Mm. So Isn't that, it interesting how, like how one incident, and I'm sure it had positive effects too, because it helped you if you were getting a big head, come back down to earth. But one incident can change our trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. And it's caused years and years of judging myself. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause in that moment you probably got the messaging, oh my gosh, 
when I am confident about who I am and what I do, I hurt people. So in order to not hurt people, what I have to do is I have to shrink. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it just, especially my high school years, huge judgment on myself, just beating myself up constantly about stuff. And it it took even after high school and even after college and everything to really, I want to say maybe three years ago, to get a little more confident in myself and what I was doing, going from back when I was 11 of overconfidence. Yeah. Turning That's to interesting. judgment. Yeah. I, I had a similar trajectory. It was, I always say I wasn't bullied by kids. I was bullied by adults. Um, <laughs> Cause it's true. But I had a similar situation where in middle school, I like thought I was the shit. Like I was actually overweight in sixth grade and thought it was the hottest thing that ever walked the earth. Like I'd swipe on green eyeshadow and be like, you got this babe, go in, get uh-huh. it. And in high school, actually, like I lost all the weight. I was thriving, quote unquote, from like the outside world looking in. But then I lost all my confidence in that like physical transition. And then I had this choir teacher that like totally sucked the joy out of music for me. So that was kind of like my inciting incident, I think, if if I look back of not thinking I was enough and not thinking my creativity was enough. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so interesting trying to recover from those things that were maybe these small little moments if you like look back and you zoom out but they were these huge big life changers for us because of the mm-hmm. way we internalized them yeah that's exactly right how did you start to go about getting your confidence back hmm. oh, man you you ask such great questions oh thanks <laughs> Eric. like it, it, be, it turns into a therapy session okay how did I get my confidence back how did you start the path? Because it's, I think once you have something like that happen, it's continuous. It's not like, I, I had this girl on the podcast. I don't know if you listened to it. It's one of my favorite episodes, but she talks about how people always say like, I did this and then I was healed. It's like, that's actually not how life works. It's a continuous oh, yeah. effort to try to get ourselves to just be kind to ourselves. Right. And mm-hmm. so how did you start working at that? And how are you continuing to work at rebuilding your courage and your belief in your abilities? You know, it, it all kind of hit around three years ago when I turned 30. And it had always been building. And I never really acknowledged the fact that I beat myself so much. Like, I knew I did. And it all started from, like, high school and thinking I wasn't good enough. And then my teachers, like, my band teacher would say, Eric, everything's going great. Even though I'd win awards for drumming or whatever, I still said, oh, that sucked. That was the worst thing. And so it continued throughout the years and then went into 2017 when I was about to turn 30. And I was at a job that just pushed me to my limits in terms of mental capacity and and just like stressed out and anxious all the time. Mm -hmm. And then I also had started to get into... uh, a lot more athletics than I ever had in my life where I had just done maybe my third marathon and I was prepping for a hundred mile bike ride with my wife and just everything was just stirring. And and I realized I'm beating myself up so hard that it's just hard to enjoy things. And like we, we did this hundred mile bike ride on my wife's birthday and it was a really hard experience. I got a flat tire at mile 99 of a hundred (gasps) miles and my teammates had to help me fill up that tire. And we just had like four minutes and we crossed the finish line, but I finished that race and I just broke down. I said, I I got a 99 out of a hundred, even though I crossed the finish line, even though I'd spent eight hours on a bike, I felt like I failed, which is not how you should feel after something like that. And just having the fear of not calling any subs for any gigs that I had because I thought they would take my job. I, and I thought other drummers will be better than me. So why should I give up my gig? And it just kept spiraling and spiraling. And I went to see a therapist. It was time to talk to someone about all this stuff. And that was the the way it got me to to realize what was happening. And I was with her for about a year. And by the year, we were at a pretty good place feeling like I was okay. But meditation, 
taking time away from the thing you love also helps. And did you actually do that? You took time away from music? I, I wouldn't say I took time away from music. I think what I mean is my wife and I are both workaholics. So right. I am too. Um, yeah. United. Oh, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think what I had to do was just like not stay up late to work on a song or maybe pass up a gig or don't do the gig that takes up more time and without the return and just focus more on, on me and like just that's what you need. To, you need to focus on yourself. Number one, like that, that's the number one priority. And how did that feel saying no? I so relate to you. I feel like we're a lot, a lot alike. And yeah. I, I have a couple of questions. So first of all, how did it feel about saying no? And second, I want to ask you about the workaholism thing, because I'm trying to get to the bottom of that in my life. And I'm curious to know what insights you have and what you can share with the listener to help them if they're also in the similar boat. So sure. how did it feel saying no? Like, how did you sit with that discomfort? That was not fun. It was hard. Like when like a gig comes up or a job and you want to immediately say yes, because you have the feeling of if you don't tell them right away, they're going to move on to someone else. Or you look at your calendar and that time is free. That, that was always my feeling of like, the time's open. Like, why don't I do it? And so I made it a challenge with a friend of mine who was also trying to say no to things. And we, we called it the year of no, because we would <laughs> celebrate like, hey, I just turned down this gig. That's awesome. What did you turn down? Oh, I turned down this thing that wasn't going to pay me at all and waste my time. Oh, that's awesome. So at first it was tough. And I have a hard time sitting still for things. Mm -hmm. And I had to just live in that uncomfortable feeling for a moment to understand that it's, it's okay to do nothing. And that's what I had to learn over a while. Like even, you know, during everything we're going through right now, last Saturday, it was the first time I literally did nothing. I woke up after 7am, which is rare for me. <laughs> I, I woke up at 10am and I played video games all day, which is something I don't do at all ever. And I finished the day and said, wow, I actually did nothing. And I didn't stress about anything. And I needed that. Yeah. It, and it's, I don't know what the best advice is about it. I just say, go in small steps. It's like how I train for running a marathon. I don't start training for a marathon by running 20 miles on day one. I, I run a mile and then right. you go to two and then five and 10. And so everything is just little steps for it to feel more comfortable. I guess you have to think about your own inner peace and mental capacity in the same way you would with your physical body. It's hard for me to do that because I'm like, clearly I'm not going to run. Tw is it 26 miles for a marathon? Yeah. yeah, 20, yeah. Tw I'm not going to run 26 miles after only having run three. But for me, I think I could work 18 hours. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, no, that's not actually how life works. Um, you can do that, but you're going to peter out at some point. And so it's good. I like that analogy that you need to think about your mental capacity, your creativity, your serenity, your peace in the same way you would your physical body. Because mm -hmm. we do have those same limitations. Maybe they won't be as drastic in a day, but over time, if you keep putting yourself through that kind of rigor, you're going to have a burnout. It's just the fact. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think the workaholism thing is a piece of your nature. What is it about staying in motion? What are the benefits you're getting out of it? And why do you think it's happening? It started from magic. It started from the feeling of when I was 11 or 12, that's when the anxiety was starting, where not, not that I'm saying my parents did anything wrong or anything, but like I felt pressure to, to do well. As we all do, we want to do well in school or for, you know, make our parents proud and stuff. But I, I really took it to heart. Like I need to do well. I need to work hard to do well, to make everyone happy, which I was making myself happy, but I had this overall feeling of everyone needs to be happy with me and the work right. I'm doing. I did every band possible that was available in school. I had all this pressure to, to get high honors, to, get straight A's or whatever, which I did it all. And it was hard work, but it was, I wouldn't be happy if it wasn't the highest. 
if I had a kind of like the race I told you, if it was a 97, I was like, well, it's not a hundred. It's a 97. <laughs> I get what you're saying. So like you were basically because of the messaging you got and because of the feedback you got, you were drawing your self-worth from these outside entities. And yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think that's why this time we're in, Eric, is so interesting. Part of why I came home, all the reasons I moved to LA no longer exist. I didn't move there mm -hmm. for the weather. I purely moved there for my career. So all the reasons are now online. And it's like, it kind of has made me shift my awareness to be like, what am I actually doing Mm -hmm. And what really matters? Because all of these things are great and pursuing your dream is important. And I think that putting your creativity out there is part of our birthright and our lifeblood. But I need to start shifting my focus toward like my inner life and my connection with God and my family because nothing else is really real or will last. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and and it, it's difficult because my nature is to think my worth is tied up in what I do. Totally. Even talk about what we're all dealing with right now uh, during quarantine. Technically, you have, quote unquote, all this time. And there's this added pressure, I think, on creatives of you're not doing gigs, you're not out there. So do something right now, because this is the only free time you're ever going to have. Well, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> not true. It's that we never made the free time to do the things that we want to do. and. You don't have to make a video every day. You don't have to learn a new skill today if you really are too exhausted emotionally. Right now is the best time to focus on yourself and do nothing. Like how I did last Saturday, I did nothing. And it was a little painful, the workaholic in me. But at the same time, the next time I jumped in on doing music, I felt so much better and way more motivated. I think it's a great lesson in learning that we do have time. We just never made it for ourselves. That's so powerful. So there's a few other things from your story that I find so interesting. You talked about marathon and like what a great analogy it is doing all these physical, I was going to say activities, but that doesn't really feel like a good enough word for a marathon <laughs> or a hundred mile bike race, but doing all these physical quests, I'll say. How do you keep your brain from murdering yourself? while you're in the middle of that? Like, how do you keep that mental strength while you're in the middle of a big race like that? So every single level of training for the marathon has been, well, I need to have my music. If I don't have music when I run, I'm not going to be able to concentrate. And what that turned to over the years is, well, maybe I don't need the music. I think I've, I've run enough where I think the music is distracting me. Because as a musician, when we listen to music as musicians, it's sometimes hard to just enjoy a song. Sometimes you're, yeah. you're overanalyzing it and thinking like, oh, that's, why would they go with that simple chord progression? Or like, <laughs> oh, I know where this is going. Or like, right. oh, I, I think that's what? the Berkeley in you too. <laughs> it, yeah. I notice it with all my friends who went to Berkeley. They're like, oh, that's my sound of your brain. That is. And that's what I was doing during the run where I wasn't focusing on the, the physical aspect. Right. I was focusing on what I was listening to because I felt that, well, the music is pushing me along. And, and I realized it was actually slowing me down at times. And you're a workaholic. So you're in you're probably subconsciously you thought, oh my gosh, well, this is another opportunity for me to do some analysis. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like your brain can't shut off that easily. So if it's given the opportunity to do work while doing other work, it's going to do the work. Yeah. So after I want to say three marathons, I went to a therapist for that year. And then it was time for the fourth marathon and I didn't use music. I wasn't using music for a while and just used the outdoor sounds. Because what I realized is when you're doing a 26.2 mile marathon and you're running in a city and you're running anywhere, literally anywhere, you should be focusing on the race, not what's going through your headphones and the music. Maybe if you have it on a low volume, that'll help. But it's like the one time you can mentally just take in an area. They, you paid for this race to shut down the roads so you could run on it and not focus on anything except that. So why not just focus on that? So I just shut off the music, 
took in the sounds of the crowd, took in the fact that, wow, I'm running on Sunset Boulevard and no one is here. Like, how cool is that? So when I did Chicago Marathon that fall, again, I didn't use music. And I just took in the city because I'd never been to Chicago before. It's like a master's class in presence. It's It really is, especially for that long, for four hours. While you're putting your body through physical treachery. So now, nowadays when I'm running, when it's like four to six miles on my own, I listen to podcasts. I don't even listen to music anymore because listening to someone talk to me in my head is a lot easier when I'm running because I'm still aware of my surroundings, but I'm listening to people talk about things that I'm interested in. Like I have listened to your podcast while running. I've listened to comedy podcasts. And and that for me is more of a, a mental break than having to listen to music. So speaking of music, and we talked a little bit about this. We teased it. You went to music school. And I'm yeah. always curious. So how did you make the decision to go to music school? And what do you think the benefits and the drawbacks were of studying it in that intense manner? Entering Berkeley was definitely a culture shock because coming from Rhode Island, I was a big fish in a small pond. And now this was the one of the biggest schools I've ever seen of musicians. You know, there's positives and negatives going to a music school. And there's, there's, how do I say this? I'm glad I went to Berkeley for the network. And I learned so much about arranging and performing. But that doesn't mean that what I did was right for someone else. And I know some people who, have become successful musicians and didn't go to music school. I mean, that's most musicians. That's most famous musicians who did not go to music school. The reason I ask is because, you know, weirdly enough, the same thing happened with my high school friends. My parents tried to send me to the Catholic school and I refused and I wanted to go to the public school, but I ended Mm -hmm. up being friends with all the Catholic school kids anyway. I had the same thing with Berkeley. My parents didn't want to send me there, but I didn't go to Berkeley, but I've ended up all the people I write music with, a bulk of my musician friends went to Berkeley and I see Mm -hmm. so many beautiful benefits. The biggest one being the network. The second, obviously the education, no one can ever take that away from you. And you just have such a rich understanding of all facets of music and theory. And even if you studied at the business. But I do think that because of the environment you were in at times, it caused you to question yourself and and feel sometimes that nothing's ever good enough. And mm-hmm. so I, I always try to ask people who did go to music school or even I went to acting school, like acting school, what were the benefits and drawbacks? Because there are many people that do it without doing the schooling part of it. And so I just, I think it's a good thing to ask, but I totally get what you're saying. It's just, it's a personal situation and it depends person to person. Yeah. And I don't even know if you could go back and change everything. Would I be in the same place I am now? And the answer is no. I mean, honestly, if I didn't go to Berkeley, I wouldn't have met my wife who is not a musician, but we worked at the Apple store together, Boylston street. Wow. And uh, we were acquaintances like we kind of knew each other, but then moved out to LA separately without knowing, reconnected within the few months we both moved and we've been married for almost seven years. If I didn't go to Berkeley and I went to Miami, I wouldn't have met my wife or I wouldn't have gotten all the opportunities I have now. Like who, who knows? You really just, you can't go what if, it's just, this is what it is and you got to run with it. You've mentioned your wife quite a few times, so I'm guessing she's quite integral to your creative path. How do you think having her as your partner has increased your creative capability and the way you pursue your career? She is one of the hardest working people I've ever met. We're both workaholics, so we both understand our stresses and where we're coming from. But she went to business school. She is an amazing entrepreneurial mind. And just over the years, taught me more about business and structure and not just winging it necessarily when it comes to figuring things out or or focusing my time more on what's important versus taking everything on. And she's just been so integral to the way I think from a business sense that has also led me to opportunities I never would have thought of beforehand in terms of negotiating, in terms of networking. And it's helped my music supervision career. Like 
I'd say if it wasn't for her pushing my strengths and administrative stuff that I forgot about, I don't think I'd, I'd get here today as a music supervisor. We're both workaholics. We're both trying to calm down a bit with work, <laughs> but, uh, but she's majority of why I am here today. <laughs> I love that. I want to ask you about your music soup stuff in just a minute, but first I want to see if you have a top lesson that your wife has taught you about business that you could share with other creatives that they might need to hear. Okay. So I don't know if you know this, but my wife and I used to own a gym for three years. I read that in your bio. Yes. Yeah. We, we had a boxing gym. It was all her idea <laughs> to get this started. Every time my wife came up with a quote unquote crazy idea, I'd say that's insane. And then she would execute it. And so the latest one was, I think I want to open a, a boxing gym. This will be part of a franchise. And I said, first off, you are, you are really tarnishing the Calvert name because we don't do athletics except for the marathons and all that. But okay, everyone's going to think I'm crazy. Everyone who I grew up with because they knew I didn't do that stuff. So my wife really took charge in that. And she really fights to make sure that everyone is satisfied. And, you know, if there's an error, like her customer service ways are just incredible and just making sure your customer's feeling comfortable. And I think in turn, that kind of goes with subbing out a gig. If you can't do a gig for someone that you committed to and you have to bow out, don't just say, hey, I'm out. Like just say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Take the proactive steps of, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't do this gig because it's conflicting with something else that I forgot I booked. Do you have someone in mind that you want to hire instead? Or do you want me to find a sub? Do you want me to supply them the sheet music so they know what's doing? I'll give them all the notes. Even if you're stuck in a situation that's uncomfortable, do your best to make the situation better by, by helping. Don't just drop out. And even if someone at the gym like had an issue or we accidentally charged them for something, like we make up for it. Oh, so sorry. Let's refund that to you or let's make it better. How can we make it better for you? And I feel like that's so important because this is all about relationships and keeping a relationship going similar to why you're being hired. Like you're not just hired for a gig because you're talented. You're hired because they like you. And that was something that took me forever to realize, which is the fear I told you before of subbing out my gigs because someone else is going to be better. And my therapist said, wait, Eric, what? don't you think they're hiring you because they like you? And it just blew my mind. Like, oh yeah, I forgot that I, they like me. That's the biggest thing in creativity in general. I think that's why I'm so successful as a podcast producer and even a host is because I make other people feel comfortable. And that is something you can't put a price tag on. And that is something you can't teach. Right, right, exactly. And it seems and like that's something you do too. And I think that it's just a good thing to remember when you're putting yourself out there as a creative and you are trying to sell your skills. Don't just look at it as what is my pure skill? Look at it as what are those untangible things that you have that nobody else can replicate? And exactly. know that that is your true worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it took time to understand that. And I'm so glad that you know, my wife has taught me this kind of stuff, the therapy, and just over time learning. Be a good person first. Be, be a person that you would want to meet before anything else. The music doesn't matter. I, I'd, or the skill. I'd rather hire someone I really like who is a decent musician versus someone who is the best all-time musician but has a not jerk. just a jerk and a sour personality. And we've all seen that. I've seen that so many times of different situations of people telling me, oh, you haven't played with this person. This person's great. Like you got to play with them. And then you finally do. And they don't want to talk to you at all. <laughs> they don't blend with you at all. It's disappointing. It's tough. Like my mentor, Kevin Undergar always says, hire for heart, train for skill. But you do oh, have a right. lot of skills. You wear multiple hats. You're a music supervisor. You do drumming. You compose. You arrange. You also do all this awesome fitness stuff and spend time with your wife. But I want to know a couple things. So how did all these things come to be in 
California? Because did you originally just move here to singularly pursue music or did you know you wanted to do this multitude of different activities? Always been someone that has worn multiple hats and and took on more than I could handle, even though I wanted to do it because it all came from the high school feeling of, well, I need to do well. I need to have high honors. I need to do the most amount of things to feel like I'm accomplishing something. So when I got to Berkeley, I thought I was just going to be a drummer. I, I didn't really know much else. I thought, well, I'll just be a touring drummer or a Broadway drummer. That's really what I wanted to be. And I took some arranging classes and then learned that I really liked this and thought, oh, not many drummers know music theory and I'm pretty good at it. So I think I can do this arranging thing. So then throughout college, I was known as the arranger the copyist or the horn part writer or whatever, and a drummer. So I, I added more skills. So in college, that, that really started the whole multi-hat wearing thing. And then when I was finishing Berkeley and thinking about what I wanted to do, I thought I was going to New York because I grew up with musical theater because of my parents, you know, the magic and, and theater stuff. And so I thought, this is where I'm going to go. And then I realized I don't really... I didn't love New York. I it just I had been to New York so many times throughout my childhood because my parents would bring us to Broadway shows once a year, and I was so used to uh, Times Square and and just Broadway. And once I got older, I realized I don't really like this. I don't want to be in a cramped city anymore. Like I want something different. So I visited LA the spring break of my senior year just for fun. I was visiting friends that went to Berkeley that moved to LA. And I remember I was at In-N-Out with a really close friend of mine. And he said, Eric, you shouldn't wait another year. You need to come out here now because the jobs are going to disappear. If you want to be in LA, you need to come to LA as soon as you can. Some of my dad's magic friends had some places for me, like a couch for me to stay on or a room. And so I made the decision to move out that summer. I was going to wait a whole other year and just build up some money, but it, it felt like the right thing to do. So I came out here thinking I was going to be a drummer and a ranger. And while I still am that, that's not my full-time thing. Things change. And I picked up other gigs, working for film composers, working at a sheet music publisher. I was an extra on TV shows. Just to make any money, I worked at Johnny Rockets. And I, I came out In here- In Burbank? It, no, at Hollywood and Highland. Oh, fun. Yeah, yeah that was something. So- <laughs> And I got to be a production assistant on some TV shows as well, thanks to my dad's magic friends. You can see magician people really helped me out. When Magicians, I, I feel like I need to become friends with them because they really stick together. I was very lucky that my dad had so many friends out here. Uh, yeah. Luck. It's just all luck. You, you. I mean, it's not all luck. You also worked really hard. You're very talented and you're a good person. So when all those things come together, it's only a matter of time till things start panning out. Well, but okay. <laughs> I'm curious. Okay. For people that don't know, because we mentioned that you're also a music supervisor and that's something you delved into. What is music supervision and how did you get into it? Music supervision is... You are literally supervising any music that's going into a production from a legal standpoint, from a creative standpoint, everything that involves allowing music in a production, that's my job. So it's it has to do with getting the legal right to use the music in something, getting approval from the people that want to use it, like within our company, if everyone's aligned to use that piece of music, and then getting the person paid making sure we're keeping track of the licenses and the negotiations, recognizing like if there are multiple people that own the recording and the publishing. So my job is all of that. So I, uh, but most importantly, you pick the songs, right? Just for people that don't even understand that you actually pick the songs that are going to appear in film, TV, video games. You're actually choosing that. And then you're going through all that legal process to make sure it's a okay. Yes. And it, and it's not just a, it's not just my job to choose the music. Like I may be presenting the ideas to a bunch of people who will make the final decision, but in a sense, a music supervisor is the gatekeeper of letting music in to a company to potentially use. 
What would so, be your advice for a musician out there who wants to pitch their music to be considered for a production by a music supervisor? It's similar to how we want to hire someone as a musician. You have to respect the person's time. You have to understand where they're coming from in terms of how much music they're getting pitched every day. Everyone wants their music in a production, no question. But it has to do with how you're approaching it. It can't be a long ramble of, my name is, we'll use you, for example, Lauren, as a name. Like, my name is Lauren. I, I do this and this. I've gotten all these accolades and awards. And here's my music. That's just a huge email to send to someone. It's kind of, I describe it as like a first date. Like, when you meet someone on a first date, you don't tell your life story. Like, well, I was born here and I moved here and I broke up with this boyfriend and then I That's really good to know, though, because I would have thought you want to hear my accolades to know why I matter. Like, I'm not just a random song. Like, I could actually bring visibility to your production. So that's, like, something that I wouldn't think intuitively, and it's really a great tip. Yeah, it's, you know, you would think it's like handing a resume over. But the problem is there's so many people that want the same thing that why not be a little more personable and make it short and sweet and to the point? Because I wish my job was just listening to music, but that's (laughs) that's maybe 10% of my job. So write your perfect pitch, like verbally do the perfect pitch for me right now. Okay. Let's, let's say for example, you're pitching to just think of a show that you think would work for your music, Lauren. Little fires everywhere. Okay. Little fires everywhere. And is there a song on that show that sounds like your sound? I don't know actually if this is the best example because they mostly <laughs> use cover songs that are redone. But you know what I will say? Yes. Okay. I do a really cool version of Genie in a Bottle that's a cover song. And I think that would be a good pitch to put in for one of the ending credits. Okay. And and I'm only breaking this down because this is like how we need to think about it. No, I'm so, glad you are. This is really, this is a great little clip. We're going to clip this out for all the musicians wait, out there. So does that show use covers? It does. That's, that's the main way that they use music is 90s. It's mostly 90s and early 2000s covers in the ending credits. Okay. So great. You said everything that needs to be said. So this is perfect. So- you would say something like this. Hi, music supervisor of Little Fires Everywhere. My name's Lauren, and I love the work you do on Little Fires Everywhere. I know you use a lot of 90s covers, and I have this great Genie in a Bottle cover that's kind of similar in vibe to the stuff you use on the show. If you could use it, let me know what you think. I own 100% of the master publishings with so-and-so. Thanks. And have Thanks a for your day. consideration. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's it. It's done. Cool. <laughs> like, oh, my it. gosh. It's- How freeing, because a lot of times I like make myself think I have to prove to them that I'm worthwhile, probably like a self-worth thing. But that's just such a good thing to know. Like you just need to make their job easier. It's not about all the shit you've done in your life. (laughs) Because it really depends on what they're looking for. Some shows like to use unknown or or not as mainstream uh, of an artist. Like they like to discover someone like Ingrid Michaelson was discovered, I think, for Grey's Anatomy. I think she was just a New York singer-songwriter. And then once she had that placement, her shows were sold out. And that's what skyrocketed her. And they wanted to use someone unknown. And also from a budget standpoint, maybe they didn't have enough money to to pay for someone mainstream, which is why they went for someone who was a little more indie. And you really need to pay attention to the show and what type of music they're using. Like you just said of that show they use 90s songs and they do covers. Like, that's the answer. Like, you can't show them anything else. Don't you dare show them anything that doesn't fit with that show. You're just going to waste your time. So I'm curious how the current state of the world is affecting music supervision because I'm putting out singles right now, as you've seen, and I've been wanting to pitch them, but I'm like, is this even a thing right now? How is that affecting your job and this industry as a whole? Luckily for me, the company I work for is mostly a digital company. So it doesn't really affect our releases that much. We may push back some things, 
but it, our work is still consistent. So I'm very thankful and lucky that my job is still consistent. I do know a lot of other people who are having trouble because productions are shut down for film and TV. And there's just nothing moving from that sense. I know advertisers are still busy, like ad agencies and whatnot. So those supervisors are still working. But it's a very weird environment right now. But my wife and I were just talking the other day about how things have adjusted. I think we've all figured it out. And I think we also don't need to bring attention to it as much. We need to just remember that this is the new normal at this time. And this is what it is. So I'd almost maybe not bring attention to what's going on and just say something simple. What I've been saying is just, hey, hope you're doing, hope you're safe during this unusual time around the world. Then right. get back, just get to work. Don't. Uh, so there's, it's attention. not like a faux pas to pitch right now. It's totally fine. I don't think so. I still get pitch emails and it is what it is, but. I don't know. I, I, you kind of need to just get back to work in a way. I think our month has has passed of like, oh no, like the world has completely changed. But now it's time to stop focusing on that and just keep going. Everyone needs to work. And even if the productions are not happening at the moment, if you strike someone the right way with your pitch emails, maybe they'll hold it in a playlist and get to it when production starts again. Final question. I know that in the past when I've, I've actually taken music supervision classes, like from the viewpoint of an artist, like how you should be pitching to them. And she said to send it as a link. Is that still the best way to do it? Like to send a SoundCloud link or a Spotify link? Like how do you prefer to receive the music? I think the best thing to do is a Dropbox link. Dropbox link. Okay. Because that gives them the opportunity to download. That, that is if you want them to download. I, I would say that you should allow download so they can have it. Because from my point of view, I don't necessarily get to every single pitch email that's sent to me. But if I go back to it after seeing it three months ago, and then the link is expired or there's only a stream and I need a download. We transfer is the bane of my existence. I wish that yes. it would go away. I hate it so much. If you <laughs> are going to use it, like, please don't make the link expire. You're exactly. killing us. You're yes. killing us. <laughs> yes. So don't have the link expire. Just have a download ready to go. So we don't yeah. need to run around and find you. Yeah. Because if you just stream it, then I'd say the one thing to never ever do is put the mp3 or wave in an email as an attachment. So the person I took this class from was, so, she's a music supervisor, but she was like so emphatic about like, never ever send a song that you force me to download. So I think I just internalized that so deeply that I'm like, you can never let them download it. And I think I took it the wrong way. I, th I um, think she means if it's a link that automatically downloads, don't right. do that. That makes but, more sense. Yeah. I'll do the Dropbox from now on. Okay. Thank you for that. And I'll make yeah. sure that the listeners know too. Yeah. Okay. So what would be your advice for somebody who wants to get into music supervision? Like what is a good course of action? It's a very different way to go about this from my music education. It's different from studying how to be a, a musician. I think some of the main piece of advice I'd have for supervision is you have to be organized, number one. Like administrative skills are the most important thing you'll need to be a music supervisor. I think your ear is the second most important thing because everyone has a musical opinion and everyone makes their own playlists or has their own taste and style. And you kind of need to respect all of it. And sometimes you may not get the creative idea that you wanted and they may want something that's not what you ever expected, but you're just gonna have to roll with it. Because at the end of the day, the supervisor is not the decision maker in creative stuff. We are the go between, between the creative people and the people that own the music. And we're just making sure everyone gets along. So I'd say to look for a job as a music coordinator for a music supervisor, if you want to go directly into supervision, but you also may realize that you may not like to be the supervisor and you'd rather pitch the music and be the cheerleader 
for a label or a publisher that has artists that you really love and respect. And you might find supervision's more fun that way. It's it's kind of, there's multiple paths in the supervision world that you could go after. And you may start on one path and realize you want to go to the other. Like I started on the pitching side. I got my supervision job through my administrative skills and my musical education. And I said, look, I don't have a music business degree, but I understand music and I'm good at admin. And so that's how I started to pitch. And then from there, through my network, I found a job at Activision Games, where I'm at now, as a music coordinator. But I didn't know if I was going to become a supervisor or be on the choosing side versus the pitching. But it's all subjective to how everyone feels about how they do this. So it, out of all that, you have to be good at Excel. <laughs> Using Excel <laughs> Uh, I can't wow. stress that enough. It's so I was important. a treasurer in high school. I feel like that's the last time I really delved into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's as we've said a million times, I'm a workaholic and I have a ton of lists, to-do lists, Excel spreadsheets of different things. Like I'm obsessed with organization. So mm. you also need to be obsessed with organization because when you have to clear over 500 songs for a game like I did, you need that <gasps> Excel spreadsheet. Wow. So how do you handle, because you do so many things, and again, I relate, how do you handle when people come up to you and they say, so what do you really do? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, <laughs> uh, that is isn't that a fun little question oh it's the worst question it's, it's tough because you need to know the crowd that you're talking to or the person right. you're talking to make sure that they don't think oh so he so he doesn't make any money or oh so he does make money or oh so he has no life <laughs> you know it right uh, what do i what do i do i don't know i i kind of try to make it a small answer just to make it easier. And then maybe in the future I'll expand. But I, I right. guess what I do is I say I work in music mm-hmm. because it, and, and it's true. I work in music. Like I have experience as an arranger or a musician or a music supervisor. And it shows like I'm the music supervisor at Activision. I'm a drummer on a Netflix special. I put in the work. So you're doing everything you say you do. So it's not like it's not true. It's just sometimes it's hard for people to understand all of life's possibilities because they've limited their own vision for what they could be. Oh, yeah. And and it would also sound crazy if I met you and said, hey, I'm Eric. I'm an arranger, composer, music supervisor, runner, blah, blah, blah. That sounds insane. Like, no, you're not. (laughs) You're not all that. See, how in the world? You sound like you have your head on straight about that. The thing for me that I think I struggle with is I need everybody to understand every piece of me or else I don't feel seen. And so Mm. it's really difficult when someone says something like that to me because I'm like, fuck you. I'm a multi-passionate creative and here's a list of things I do and I do them well. And next question. I have two more questions for you. So a big thing I talk about on this podcast is fear. I'm mm-hmm. wondering what your current relationship with fear is and how you work on taking it out of the driver's seat. I'd say in the past three years, my fear has definitely decreased a lot when it comes to certain things. I remember back in the day, if I made an error during a performance, I would focus on that error and say, I didn't do 100%, I did 98% because I messed that thing up. And I think over the past three years, 
I've definitely not cared so much because I, it's exhausting to be scared. It's, it takes over your, your entire psyche and that's all you're thinking about. And I was just tired of beating myself up and, and tired of focusing on that negativity. Like I, I did this last marathon and I did it like days before the uh, stay at home issue came out. And I always get cramps during these long 26 mile runs and they ruin my times. I train for a certain time and I'll always get messed up because of my cramps. And this was the first time my cramps didn't set in until mile like 20. And if it was three years ago and I got those cramps, my mind would be destroying me. I'd say, you suck, Eric. You're, you're terrible at this. Like you are not a runner. Like I know you've run four marathons, but you suck. And this time I just didn't care. And I just, I was tired of, of that mental breakdown and I just let it go. And I enjoyed myself more by just saying, oh, it happened. Well, I finished. So that's good. And the fear is just slowly going away as I get older. And I'm having a daughter. My wife and I are having a daughter. Congrats. Thank you. And I'm realizing that I don't want my daughter to feel the way that I'm feeling right now. Like when she gets older and maybe she's going to beat herself up. I don't want her to do that. I don't want her to go through what I went through. And so I'm realizing that it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter as much to beat yourself up over the small things. Just focus on the bigger picture. It's the glass half full, half empty thing of like, do you want to see this as a good experience with a little bit of an issue or it's a huge issue and the experience is what it is. Like it, it takes time and it's not easy, but over time you learn that the fear is not worth it to uh, cloud your vision. So with wisdom and age, you've been able to put things into perspective and every day you're working on taking it out of the driver's seat and putting yourself and your own desires and passions in the lead in your life. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think anyone is like hundred percent done with that. At the time I thought like, I'm pretty good for a while, but then maybe you have a setback a little later and, and it happens, but you just, what happens is you just get better and faster at recognizing it and hopefully trying to move on and push on to the next thing. So it doesn't consume like it used to, because it always will. We'll always have these feelings, even though I don't beat myself up as much. I will at at times, but I've learned that I just, I get over it faster. So you know how I end the show. I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. So if we're looking back and either looking at five-year-old Eric or 11-year-old Eric, however you think of him, what do you think he would say to you and why? Oh man, <laughs> I, like I knew this was coming and then I forgot it was coming. I think what he would say to me is, is don't, don't forget that inner child. Don't forget that you're still a kid, I, I think is really what it is. Don't because forget I, me. Yeah, because, and to be honest, I don't forget him. I am a child. I can have bursts of energy. I still love everything I've loved since I was five years old. I, I don't think I've dropped any interest that I've had since then. Because what I've learned is that when I really like something, I'm all in. Like, I'm still a Star Wars fan. I still love Batman. I still love Godzilla. I still love Chicken Fingers. Like, I have not changed when it comes to being a kid. It's just evolved over the years. So I I will say that the five-year-old in me will just say, don't forget who you were as a child. And I haven't. I, I truly have not. I still enjoy everything that I did when I was young, and that makes me feel young. I don't feel like I am almost 33. I still feel like I'm a kid. And what would you say to him and why? Relax. <laughs> That's what I would say. Calm down. Like it's You don't need to put so much pressure on yourself. You're doing great. Stop beating yourself up. And, and it's interesting that you say this question because in therapy, this question was asked of me, the same thing. And I would just, <laughs> I, I'm not going to cry now, I don't think, but I would cry in those sessions thinking about that question because I truly do wish that I could tell my younger self to relax and stop 
focusing on getting a hundred percent. It's, it's more important to just feel good. Yeah. I mean, I'm always shocked when people don't cry at this question because I cry almost every time I ask it when I, when I ask it of myself, because I've, I realize like if I'm going to put this immense amount of pressure on other people and make them answer this deep gut wrenching question, I better ask it of myself as well. So I did that at the end of the last year and I was inconsolable. I mean, mm. thinking of your child self, I mean, especially as you go into this beautiful new venture of raising a daughter, I think it's more important than ever to take care of that little you because mm -hmm. that little you will be directly reflected in how well you can care for that little baby that's now a piece of you. And so I think it's great that you're contemplating these questions as you transition into fatherhood, which arguably might take the most amount of creativity on earth <laughs> of anything you've done yet. So yeah. Eric, thank you. I'm excited for your next creative venture in this little girl. And I really appreciate you spending this time. Thank you, Lauren. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to my guest, Eric Kelver. For more information about Eric, follow him at E-W-I-C- D-W-M-S on Instagram. Ewick Dwums. <laughs> it's funny, Eric. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. Remember, if you like what you heard today, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Eric at Ewick Dwums so he can share too. My wish for you this week is that you remember that your worth lies in who you are versus what you do. It's so important for us all to constantly remind ourselves of that, especially during this weird year. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.